This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. In 2016, amid a flurry of discussion about light rail transit in the region of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, an intersection up the street from my apartment became the subject of widespread criticism among transportation planners. When Mark Jackson Brown posted photos to Twitter of the freshly paved sidewalk corner at Queen and Charles, with its awkward steep incline and a width of barely one meter, fellow planners and concerned citizens were quick to comment on how Waterloo Region's designers were once again prioritizing fast-moving traffic over pedestrians, even in cases where there was no pressing need to choose between them. Queen and Charles was not on a designated truck route. There were no local buses passing through, and tracks for the nearby light rail already improved the effective turning radius for everyday vehicles. Nevertheless, that narrow new corner was no friend to wheelchair users, people with strollers or small children out on bikes and trikes, or random groups of pedestrians waiting for the light. The project spokesperson was quick to explain that the corner was a temporary fix, but the fact that something as simple as a bit of pavement could so quickly bring well-worn arguments to the surface stuck with me. Born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, a city that has been the site of many battles over public space reform, I was no stranger to flashpoints of rage between drivers and pedestrians. And yet, it would take until 2018, when I moved to Colombia, to realize what had caught my attention about that simple corner, or more specifically, about the sheer force of conviction that had found regional planners so evenly and swiftly matched by citizen outcry. When I left Canada, living in Bogota for a month before settling in Medellin, my relationship to sidewalks changed immediately. Or rather, my understanding of their semiotics changed. And then they kept changing, again and again, over the weeks and months thereafter. I'm still not convinced they've fully settled. And I'm even less sure that I ever want them to again. Anyone who has visited older cities, or cities with different regulations for new construction, or cities simply manifesting a great deal more poverty than they're used to seeing every day, will recognize the mental flip that came upon me when I first emigrated to Colombia. It's that moment when we realize a set of assumptions we've carried with us as background noise, assumptions about how various political arguments and social priorities fit into one another, has always been completely contextual. Not arbitrary, not random, but also not foregone conclusions. At least not until they actually come to pass, and we then start forgetting that other configurations of the world were once possible. That was me, at least, from day one while walking through streets unlike any I'd ever experienced before. And if you're like me, or better yet, like any one of the hundreds of thousands of people all over the world engaged in the work of planning better cities, then there's something quite thrilling in that mental flip. It's that moment when we catch a glimpse of more societal arrangements 
than the ones into which we were born, and the gears start turning. We start imagining more ways to live and work and move alongside one another, more ways of telling the story of how we relate to one another and what we owe to one another, and the distance between the world before us and the world of our ideals. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced and lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're going to take a walk together through some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the sidewalk. During my month in Bogota, I lived in Candelaria, one of the oldest parts of that almost 500-year-old capital city, where the vestiges of Spanish colonialism still register as an uneasy oppression on some of the most grandiose downtown streets. Every weekday, I would walk around 45 minutes either to or from Chapinero, an upscale neighborhood with a significant tourist draw to take a certificate course so I could teach English officially in Colombia. Between the two, I walked through rough and lean commercial districts. I walked past museums and theaters and churches and parquets with prominent statues. I walked through heavily touristic alleyways laden with knick-knack shops and sprawling, ostentatious business districts with the mountain peeking through between glass and steel on any day when it wasn't heavily raining. I walked along contemporary paved streets and old stone passageways that had been repurposed for vehicular transport and mixed-use zones that pedestrians, bus riders, cyclists, and drivers weaved through in equal measure. I walked as often as I could so that I could learn to move comfortably and safely and attentively through part of this land that I so keenly wanted to make my new home. What I was processing above all else during that first month of commuting mostly on foot, less often by bus, was the sheer range of structures, the diverse arrangements of public space and the people who inhabited them. I was adjusting to the relentless street hustle of que buscas, que buscas? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? From hustlers in packed walkways who would take you whole blocks away if you expressed any interest at all in what they were selling to visit the actual stall for their wares. I was acclimating too to streets filled with disabled persons, elderly and otherwise, and parents with children, all navigating their world differently from how I'd seen similar demographics navigate public spaces in Canada. Never had I seen so many prominent limb differences, for instance, and not just among the people out begging, people who displayed their body variations to demonstrate their need, but also among the traveling throng whose above and below the knee amputations were not hidden by prosthetics. 
Many begged with children in their arms or playing nearby, but even among the parents who weren't in dire straits, running errands looked quite different from what I was used to. Strollers, for example, were practically non-existent on the streets and in local shops. Rather, sleeping babies and toddlers were carried in thick blankets in mom or dad's arms, and even baby bags were minimal to non-existent. Parenting in public, in other words, looked profoundly different from similar in the West. Oh, and it's probably best not to talk about child seats in vehicles because while I've known a few affluent families to take the usual Western safety precautions, I've also very much known middle class and lower families here simply to keep baby or youngster in mom's arms in the back seat while dad drives carefully home. Likewise, in a world where a motorized scooter would be caught in a gutter or uneven walkway if it wasn't simply robbed on sight, people with leg-related limb differences used crutches to move around, if that. In Bogota, I also saw a handful of such men compelled to crawl on their arms across hot pavement in the middle of the day. Magnifying glasses were also a common item among street vendors, because if you're low-sighted, and cash poor, in that city of some 11 million, magnifying glasses are cheaper than trying to buy prescription spectacles. The streets were an intense place, I should add, even for an able-bodied person such as myself. The risk of pickpocketing, or even more aggressive robbery, was high even in the middle of the day, on the buses and the plain streets. And so one's sensory awareness needed to be sharp wherever one moved, Major streets in Colombia also use a double crosswalk system, so pedestrians have to watch for twice as many lights to work in their favor when crossing busy intersections. It was a whirlwind of an adjustment for me. It would have been impossible, I know, for many others to navigate safely. When I moved to Medellin, I breathed out because the city's old and new design decisions more often allowed me to see sidewalks as places of leisure and rest, even if they had quirks of their own. Panaderias and brosterias, bakeries and chicken shacks, where one could take a little cup of cheap black coffee and a ball of heavenly fried dough called a bunuelo, flourish along streets routinely shaded with old-growth laurel, mango, carob, and ceiba trees that, in exchange for improving the air and mitigating midday heat, often utterly shattered concrete and tile sidewalks with their vast, buttressing root networks. In this far less litigious culture, where everyday citizens are expected to watch out for their own health and well-being wherever they might roam, without expecting the city to pay for any injuries incurred on their commutes, local residents have simply learned to accommodate, for months or even years, any broken up sidewalks or streets until the city gets around to repairs. Running in the early mornings in that far safer cityscape, 
which would still have posed a tremendous number of challenges to people I know in Canada and the US, I wandered through numerous residential neighborhoods where pedestrian walkways were haphazard, especially in older and poorer districts, and also up steep, ramshackle mountainsides where people generally lived in handmade homes heaped up one on top of another, made mainly out of brick and corrugated metal. Some of the regions I wandered through had only recently been added to the city's water, waste, and electrical grids at all, and even though municipal metro cable improvements have popped up just in my last few years here to help alleviate the hardship of walking up and down the slope every day, you can still see all the old, makeshift routes that locals had built and maintained to make everyday transit tolerable on dusty, narrow curbsides or over narrow sewage and rainwater troughs. In English, we say, where there's a will, there's a way. But in many of these humbler barrios, the more accurate expression might be, where there's no other choice, we'll make it work. We have to. I cannot stress enough, though, how thrilled and honored I've felt to be living here while so many municipal improvements have transformed the city's public spaces. Along with the metro cable lines connecting marginalized districts to the main city grid, Medellin's Transit Authority has also been adding new bikeways and street-bound bus routes, replete with tools for people with mobility issues and reshaping sidewalk spaces as they go to allow for more mixed use and pedestrian-friendly zoning. Likewise, I feel a real surge of pride when construction teams moved in to add sidewalks to areas where for decades people of all ages had been walking in dirt and bare roadways, especially those used heavily by transport trucks, or all along precarious concrete gaps between houses, over and around all sorts of unregulated structures associated with homes made by hand. For a year and a half, while living in a modest barrio on the cusp of some far more modest barrios, I was literally running in the mornings through freshly integrating districts, where people for perhaps the first time in their lives were seeing city services reach their front doors. And yet, it still took me a few months to realize why all the city's newer sidewalks had a line of raised tiles running through the center, parallel to the streets and storefronts. I had never seen this particular design in Canada, though I could easily imagine Canadians complaining about the choice to disrupt a smooth walking path in the middle. And at first, I assumed they had something to do with managing the region's rainstorms, which come upon Medellin in torrential spurts all year long. As some of you have probably guessed though, those were tactile tiles, a way of coding the streets for safer use by low vision and blind persons, which was first developed in 1960s Japan. I'd seen a different pattern before in Canada, the upraised dots used to warn of impending gaps, stairs, and abrupt changes in the environment. It was just the long dashes, so pronounced in the center of every newer sidewalk in Medellin that felt so different from the traditional smooth blocks of concrete that make up so many Canadian walkways. And yet, strikingly, 
The way locals talk about this sidewalk feature rarely uses terminology centering disability as a standalone label. Rather, when I ask locals about tactile tiling, most instead describe it as a feature for people like their grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, or someone younger who has a specific condition. In other words, they were invoking the elderly people they knew and other people in their immediate communities who were understood to have physical impairments, including visual and spatial concerns that the guiding lines could help address. Instead of talking about the feature as for some other abstract group at a remove from everyday people who use the streets. This naturalization of at least some forms of disability as something quotidian, as a personal fact of life, rather than something separate from the typical human experience, was a very different way of thinking about how we organize ourselves, and in consequence, a mental flip that reminded me that the categories of need we use to structure our advocacy and activism in the Anglo-Western world are by no means absolute or inviolate, only contextual, for better and for worse. Here, though, is where the mental flip can backfire. Anyone who spends time in another culture is going to be struck by the difference in how something is done and might even become evangelical about that difference, might insist that we have to apply another culture's solutions directly to our own problems. Sometimes this observation is on the mark, but more often than not, unintentionally or not, we use our exposure to other systems as yet another way of asserting power within existing systems, rather than seeking to transform them entirely. And I was no different in this regard. While I was initially astonished by the number of differences between life in Colombia and in Canada, I fumbled through a vocabulary of hierarchies of better and worse. In part, this was because those were the terms which fellow North Americans seemed to be expecting. Well, many people were really asking, is it better there? Or is it, as we've always assumed, far worse? In part two, the knee-jerk assumption on the part of many Canadians that Colombia was worse, had to be worse, put me on the automatic defense in the position of having to argue in favor of Colombia against ignorant assumptions, but in ways that always exhausted me with their binary absolutism. Now that I've settled down a bit, though, a far more interesting question for me when reflecting on cultural differences is, how did we get to where we are and they to where they are? Disability is intersectional, after all. So just because one aspect of accessibility has been addressed in Medellin's newer sidewalks and in a way that more seamlessly addresses multiple demographic needs, does not at all mean that Colombia is the superior place for disability in general. So let's consider a bit of comparative context. Colombia is a country of some 50.4 million with a stark rich-poor divide that has over 21 million people, over 40% of the population, according to a recent report by El Tiempo, living in a poverty so deep that vast numbers of people in Colombia go hungry on a routine, multi-day basis. The immensity of poverty in general means that there is a profound divide between how disability plays out in legal policy here and in Canada and the U.S. 
If you're born into economic precarity in Colombia, there is a strong expectation that you will have to work through a vast number of conditions, if you can afford to have those conditions diagnosed in the first place, that many North Americans might not. In this context, investing in differently accessible sidewalks and fostering a culture that generally takes life just a bit slower to begin with are simply low-cost solutions for a massive intersectional dilemma. Colombia also doesn't have Canadian winter, though, which means that even if its disability discourse were playing out amid a more robust social welfare state, there would still be profound differences in what was seen as essential to surviving, if not thriving, as a disabled person in both cultures. Motorized wheelchairs, for instance, are a considerable security boost on wretched winter days up north, when one needs to venture into streets lined with a crisp layer of hard-packed, ice-encrusted snow on streets next to unshoveled walkways. Here in Colombia, folks might scorn the use of motorized vehicles as affluent excess, but the sheer act of living out of doors in Colombia also generally won't kill you. Not in the same way that a slushy, cold January night in the howling negative 37 degrees Celsius wind chill absolutely can. Conversely, many disabled people in North America also have good reason to question whether a little government aid is actually better than nothing. Many people in the U.S. know all too well, for instance, that welfare provided by their states is designed to keep individuals stable only within an extremely narrow definition of stability, and that these policies crush hopes of building any truly better future. Marriage is off the table, for instance, for many disabled estadounidenses who do not want to lose their meager but essential state benefits. Without those benefits, they cannot acquire the tools that in the U.S. are essential for surviving with disability. But with them, citizens have to accept firm state-sanctioned limits on their thriving. We could, of course, spend hours on these nuances alone to say nothing of others, such as the relationship between the sidewalk and the commercial enterprise, the pedestrian and the driver, the loiterer and the law. But why reinvent the wheel when our aim as humanists is to expand agency and access wherever we can? Quite a few podcasts, books, articles, and other forms of investigative journalism all address such topics with relevant experts far better and far more engagingly than this little episode, this invitation to the mental flip ever could. Here are four resources then to further whet your curiosity about the sidewalk and its role in the humanist work of expanding and optimizing sentient agency. The first is an iconic episode of the U.S. Design and Architecture podcast, 99% Invisible. Episode 308, Curb Cuts, introduces us to Ed Roberts, who bears significant responsibility for bringing about a critical change in sidewalk design 
and whose life story also involved transforming the conversation and policies around accessibility on U.S. college campuses. Also, as a fun aside, please treat yourself to Zach Anner's The Quest for a Rainbow Bagel, a brief but delightfully frustrating video about trying to move through New York with cerebral palsy. Just so you don't come away from this episode thinking that Colombia is somehow unique in not having fully accessible urban landscapes. The second major resource is a book. Gordon C.C. Douglas's The Help Yourself City, Legitimacy and Inequality in Do-It-Yourself Urbanism, which gathers five years of U.S.-centric urban research to explore the motivations for and outcomes of citizens modifying public spaces on their own. What I most enjoyed about this look at the pros and cons of things like gorilla gardens is the cultural background noise because all these projects considered exciting subversions in the highly litigious Western context are just an average Tuesday in Colombia where do-it-yourself modifications are the standard, not the exception in much of urban design. The last two recommendations are best experienced together because they represent a different slice of the intersectional problems with sidewalk and public space design. If you listen to Sidewalk Labs' podcast, City of the Future, and in particular, episode two, Modular Pavement, you'll get a glimpse of the serious mobility issues for which planners are trying to find high-tech solutions. But if you then read Alyssa Walker's 2020 article, Sidewalk Labs' Smart City Was Destined to Fail, available at Curbed, part of the Vox Media portfolio, you'll get the flip side. The problem, that is, with treating high-tech solutions as de facto superior ways of planning our cities of the future. They're both terrific resources and well worth your time. As for me, there's so much about public space I'd love to get into, but for now I'll simply say that the sidewalk might be one of our most potent everyday sites for better humanist thought. These spaces aren't just encoded with ideas about drivers and pedestrians, but also societal wealth and priorities how we shape demographics for advocacy purposes, and the impact of living in more and less litigious cultures. Paying more attention to our sidewalks is an easy way then to heighten awareness of all the unspoken ways that we currently perform what we assume are our obligations to one another. And maybe, just maybe, to help us ask ourselves if those assumptions on which our public spaces are built could and should be transformed. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist, Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud. And other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip 
finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Thank you.